0: everybody, welcome to episode 10 of Wake Up Call. It's kind of crazy that we've rammed through 10 episodes already. Um, The week off last week, obviously, um, some unfortunate circumstances happened to me. Uh, I had a lot of my belongings stolen and thus we weren't able to record an episode. But today we've got a great episode for everyone. Uh, We're talking with someone that is a Ukrainian citizen, uh, grew up and lived in eastern Ukraine until um, the conflict broke out, uh, that'll be a great and interesting conversation to hear his perspective on the war and the situation in Ukraine. Um, one other thing that I wanted to say, though, before we got started on this topic, is I want to retract something I said last week about, uh, Iran and sanctions. Um, I said that basically we should cut off all contact with Iran and, like, not deal with anything, not deal with their citizens, not deal with their business people, et cetera, et cetera. And in retrospect, um, after hearing the perspectives of a lot of my Iranian friends, I realized that that take was just very poorly researched and um, not something I agree with uh, anymore. So a lot of the feedback I got was basically like, look, you're going to hurt the Iranian citizens. You're going to hurt Iranian businesses. Um, And I mean, Milda challenged me on this in the In the podcast as well But I wanted to say that I I fully think that opinion was a bit myopic And um, definitely take that back I'm always trying to be as accurate and as transparent with my views as possible So I think it's important to let you know when I change my mind on something Because that's something that, you know I think that we as a podcast that encourages honest debate should be doing When you change your mind about something you should be honest about it And it's nothing to be ashamed of So, Milda Do you want to get us started on what we're talking about today?
1: Yeah, of course. So, of course, we're going to talk about a topic that has been on the news every single day right now. But I think we should still talk about it every single day because people are still dying. The war is not over. And it's very, very heartbreaking every time to hear the perspectives from actually Ukrainian citizens. So it will be very interesting to talk with our guests today. So, as all of you know, after the fall of the Soviet Union, when Ukraine became independent, um, got their elections, uh, all was maybe from the perspective seemed fine, but Ukraine was never fully apart from Russia. It was still very much influenced by Russia, uh, of course, and we see the effects and results of that today. Uh, so, we're gonna, before moving into the guest discussion, we just want to give you a very, very brief and quick history of the influence Russia has had on Ukraine, which have, might have led to the war today. So, Vishtva, do you want to begin with that?
0: Yeah, so I think it's important that we start right at the beginning, which was 1991, as far as Ukraine is concerned. Of course, there's Ukrainian history before that um, as an independent and free country. But if we start in 1991 with the fall of the Soviet Union, I think that's an excellent point to see how Ukraine and the modern Russian Federation have always sort of been at odds with each other and have struggled to coexist despite being neighbors and having such a close historical ties. So in 91, um, basically that marked the end of the Soviet Union when the Ukrainians voted overwhelmingly 90% to become an independent democratic country separated from the oligarchic um, Russian Federation, which had ruled them and abused them uh, for years um, under the Soviet Union. In 1994, this is very important to note, Ukraine made a deal that they thought would secure their future as a free and independent country. They gave up all of the nuclear weapons that were owned by the former um, USSR and, of course, had been stationed in Ukraine. They gave all of those weapons up, destroyed them, gave some of them back to Russia in exchange for Russia to basically leave them alone. In exchange for their sovereignty being guaranteed, Ukraine decided to give up a significant portion of its military arsenal that had been, st- um, that had been stored there. And, uh, of course, um, as Milda will, will tell you, Throughout the time since 1994, almost, you know, 30 years ago now That sovereignty has not been respected and of course right now what's happening with the Russian invasion is the most egregious example of that Alright, I'm very happy to welcome to the show uh, Alexei Zareba. We actually met in the most chance encounter um, We both like this youtuber named JJ McCullough and he was doing a meet-and-greet in the Montreal area and uh, we both hung out and started talking and I asked him to join me on the show. Thank you so much for uh, joining, Alexi. So just to start off, yeah, of course, uh, just to start off, um, do you just wanna tell your story? Just tell our listeners like who exactly you are, where you come from and how you got to where you are now?
2: Yeah, for sure. So as introduced, uh, my name is Alexei and I, I live in Canada, I was born in Russia uh, so Ukrainian parents, and I don't remember uh, Russia much at all. I lived there for five years, and I've spent the majority of my life in Ukraine, in the Donbass region, and where I lived for 10 years. And in 2015, or well, in 2014, I experienced the um, the breakaway of those regions from Ukraine, the uh, Russian, essentially the Russian invasion, I um, quite a tumultuous time. And then in 2015, I moved to Canada. I'm currently a student at the Universidad Mohel in the Masters uh, of International Public Affairs.
0: Okay. So what was that what was that time for you when the separatists uh sort of began to start the annexation and the war um of the eastern regions of Ukraine? Can you just, just go a little deeper into that in into that time and, and like just what what was it like?
2: So perhaps to, to understand how the war started, we'd we'll have to go back a few months earlier to focus on the events that unfolded in Kiev and the capital of Ukraine, uh, which were later called the uh, Revolution of Dignity or Euromaidan. So they protested on the Maidan Square, uh, where all the big protests uh, usually happen in Kiev. Um, in, in 2004, there was a huge protest. that was called Orange Revolution. Where uh, people were contesting the results of the election, and 2014, 2013 in December, people came out in support of the trade agreement with the European Union, which our president Viktor Yanukovych at the time refused to sign. So for a long time, Viktor Yanukovych was this president who was elected in 2010. And he tried to balance between Russia and European Union, but at some time, at some point he was forced to make a choice, and he was clearly pro-Russian because um, when you look at the map, the election map of twenty ten, the eastern regions, uh, most of Russian-speaking regions, voted for him, and uh, he was from he was himself from eastern Ukraine, and so when he had to make a decision, it's um, he. he um, he refused to sign the trade agreement with the European Union. That trade agreement was not, of course, Ukraine joining the European Union, but it meant a deeper integration into the European Union uh trade market. And it's uh, it meant that Ukraine would uh build closer ties to the European Union and uh, eventually could potentially join the Union. But the refusal to sign meant that the refusal to sign the agreement meant that Ukraine the policy of, of the government would be uh, closer ties with Russia, which uh, angered people quite a bit, and they came out on the street. Initially, the protest was small, and um, at first we thought that it would disintegrate, like many protests that happen in the capital. You know, the capital is uh, always a home to protest, but, you know, people come out, voice their opinion, and they leave. What did happen, however, on on that um, at the end of November was decided the fate of the of the whole protest because on November 30 uh riot police um it was late nights and they came to the Maidan square and they beat the people who were there like they tried to forcibly remove them from there. It was a very strange um very really strange move from the government because at that point the protest was um calming down and people were leaving and what it was it was was a quiet violent intervention by the riot police um especially especially considering there was no riot it was just people standing there and most of them were students most of them were young people and so the pretext for that was that they had to clear up the Maidan square to set up a christmas tree um and so the which made it even more um nonsensical because what's the point of beating people just to stop for christmas tree and on december 1st the country saw those the videos that's on the internet from cam- from cameras of uh, from security cameras and from people who managed to record this this um, this intervention by riot police and the next day thousands of people came out on the streets and i remember watching this on on you know just on the internet on the on camera and i was telling my mom come look look at the street, the, the streets of Kiev are are full it's uh it's thousands of people marching and um there was it felt like a historic event to live through and little we knew that it was only the beginning and so I would like to put this in the context of what was happening in eastern Ukraine because the question is about the separatism and how how did the uh, war start the protest was not supported very much in the eastern Ukraine uh Eastern Ukraine was always a little little different from the rest of the country they you know we we spoke russian at home i did study in ukrainian school we did not identify as russian and that's an important distinction to make there are ethnic russians who live there there are also ukrainians who for whom their language their native language is russian so they they do not necessarily want to live in russia or they they identify as russian but they would do want to use their language uh, at home and before that was not really a point of um, of of, of uh, conflict. It was not really a, uh, something that would stir up conflict. Uh, there were like language tension did exist, but no one uh, no one really minded. Like we lived, my family lived without any uh, persecution for us speaking Russian language, and there was always an option to study in the Russian um, Russian R-Russian language school. And so the Kiev is so far away when you look at the map that whatever is happening there is like a different world. And so at the time, the protest was not uh, supported uh, in the Eastern region and the people around me. They looked at it as, you know, um, people did not identify with the idea of of joining Europe because Russia is next door. We have many relatives living there and we consume their culture, dominant culture. Like here in Canada, we uh, definitely consume a lot of American media just because it's bigger and has a lot more influence. And we in Eastern Ukraine consumed a lot of Russian media because that was... Um, created in our language and um it was much more dominant than ukrainian media and so the idea of incorporating it to european union whereas you know the border to the european union is uh about 1500 to uh, 2000 kilometers like to get depending on where you want to get Hungary, or poland um people living closer to poland and Hungary to them it's a lot closer it feels uh they, they would go there a lot and uh they uh, people in Western Ukraine were a lot more supportive of joining the European Union, whereas in, uh, in Eastern Ukraine people felt ambivalent about it or outright, um, outright against it. And so the protest was not supported um, by by people around me, and but it was fun to watch at the time. I was in what grade? Um, grade eight, I believe. And yeah, grade eight, and you know, me and my uh, classmates were just watching our phones the 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 pictures and videos from the streets of Kiev and kind of felt exciting. Like this is something big happening. You know, we are, if life is not boring anymore, there's something happening in our country. And so the protest continued for December and January and later things start to get violent. You know, there were, um, um, it was, it was a big, big protest, thousands of people. And, um, police had to had to step up their efforts to to police the the area and there was a lot of um there was a lot of tension and you could i I did not i was not at the protest but when you look at the pictures from that time you could see that standoff between police and and the people and uh the the topic of euro maidan this whole protest is a subject on its own we could do a podcast separate podcast on it but the to us towards that I don't remember the exact time dates towards the February this thing started to get violent there were first death unfortunately people people were getting injured and they're um uh because of police brutality and this is it it, it started like feeling that it's not gonna end well because um the pro uh, the initial uh, initial idea, why people came out on the streets is to uh, voice their opinion against the government that did not sign the trade agreement with the European Union. In January, in December, January, the, the the goal changed. People were demanding the government to step down. Now, that's a whole different scale of the protest. Before it was, you know, we don't like the policy of the government. Now it turns out we don't like the government at all. We want you to leave. And Viktor Yanukovych, you know, he tried to hold it together and the protest had opposition leaders you know the why later people started why the protest was successful well it was not just the people on the street the people had representation in a parliament um the people supported actual politicians who who could uh, potentially if there was a power vacuum they could step in which what happened in february so on february 21st i believe the 22nd the there was an agreement struck down between the president the government and the protest that um to 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 calm down the protesters, there would be um a uh, you know, coach would fulfill certain demands. And it felt. and i i the I remember that the ambassadors of certain EU countries and United States were mediating in those negotiations. And so that was such a fleeting moment because we saw the news that uh, agreement was reached between the protesters and between uh, the government. And the next day, um you know it felt like watching a movie because the next day the president fled the country <laughs> like he, he left ukraine and I, after that it was developing very very fast so before i was talking on the scale of months so from now on I will be talking on, on the scale of days because every single day was important and so in february uh the president simply fled the country he um, he recorded his last video in kharkiv uh, another eastern region of Ukraine and then a uh, report said that he um, he fled the country by car via Crimea and uh, this is where things start to get really interesting because uh, certain groups wanted to certain militia groups wanted to kill him and so he the reports say that the narrowly escaped death there um when he was driving away from Crimea towards Russia. So next week, the the country woke up to the fact that the president has fled the country. There is no president, literally, and the parliament of Ukraine uh, voted to impeach him. Um, and the procedure was not done quite right. Like they they did not have enough votes to. They didn't reach the vote threshold to to. Properly carry out the impeachment and this is the point that russia will be using much later that uh, this was a violent revolution and takeover of the government this was illegal and military junta or how they referred that is now ruling kiev and they will be uh, they would be prosecuting you know russian-speaking ukrainians and um we need to save them. This is this is a main line in the propaganda, which worked quite effectively because um, at that point, you know, what what's really interesting about living in that time is the emotions run so high and there's so much tension that facts sometimes do not matter, because people simply pick a site and they stand on that side because of their ideology, and whatever you tell them, they won't they won't change their mind. So a lot of a lot of people in eastern Ukraine, you know, felt like this is real. You know that that the government change is now. Now means that, you know, we will be, we will actually be in our rights will be limited, you know, speaking Russian um, and, you know, every word in that. when the, when the atmosphere is so sort of like it's, it feels electrical, you know, there is a, with, with, with such high tensions, it feels like any word, any, any speech, any, anything that's said wrong can just uh, start the, the, these dominoes falling. So, you know, uh, they voted to impeach him. It's uh, they did not reach the, the right amount of votes, but they did it anyway, because, well, the president of the country, there's really nothing else to do and take uh, take care, uh, take care, um, caretaker presidents, a temporary president, the interim president took over and they set election date for, uh, for May, And that should have been the end of that, you know, if, if Russia should not intervene. So at that point, this is a crucial point where. Uh, the president is impeached. The revolution succeeded. You know, the this was a uh, high point for Piro Maidan. People stood there and they to brought down the government. Um, it was unfortunately it only happened after hundred about hundred deaths. Uh hundred people died during the protest, and it still um it still has not been discovered to this day what really happened there because, um, it's 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 a fact that there were snipers on the roof on the on that square who where did the snipers come from who ordered them to strike who ordered them to uh shoot innocent people we don't know to this day um but again the as any revolution as any like, big protest it's messy it's not it's not that black and white you know sometimes uh, there's a lot of sights, uh, a lot of hurt feelings and um when it gets violent you know people dying because of this it's inevitably it's um the, the people themselves sort of become um victims of propaganda later, like they're just used as, as props. So um to this day, you know, it 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 was a turning point in Ukrainian history, of course. And again, if if Russia had not intervened, this would probably have been the end of it. Because yes, in Eastern Ukraine clearly they're not like that. Uh, what happened in Kiev across Ukraine there were different protests in support of Euromaidan. So they were happening at the same time Eastern Ukraine did not have that. <laughs> um there was a couple of memes going around how like there's a uh, protests there and protests there, and then they show security camp from from Donetsk, and it's just empty. <laughs> so uh, no no one no one showed up. It felt like the end, uh, but I was only at the beginning because then Russia started the process of sending their troops to Crimea. So Crimea has um has been an autonomous region since Ukraine separated from Soviet Union, and it was quite clear that Russia did not really like that setup. Um. They considered it their region. And what's different from Eastern Ukraine, where I lived, is majority of people in Eastern Ukraine identified as Ukrainians, even though they're Russian-speaking. Now, maturity um, in Crimea identified as ethnic Russians. And there were quite a, few, like, a lot of Ukrainians living there, but also a lot of ethnic Russians. And so immediately after after the government changed in, in Kyiv, um, something, something started stirring up in Crimea. And it was definitely the point where uh, Russian government felt this is the right moment. This is where Ukraine at its weakest point, just after the revolution, we have to take advantage of it. And everything else that has been happening in Crimea after that was shown in Russia as you know, people reclaiming their their destiny. You know, they want to be back to Russia. And there was clearly like a lot of um a lot of people supporting in Crimea supporting the uh, joining Russia and uh, they um, there was definitely a popular support of that but it's hard to measure how much um how much exactly they supported and later when the troops entered uh, they entered Crimea russian troops on february 27th so next day the whole world sees these people who are not were not identified as russians you know they they did not wear any um, uh, any signs they did not wear it was impossible to tell who they are it was quite clear that they're from russia but they did not say we are russian army and so then they're standing there, and then the local government in Crimea announces this referendum to join in Russia, and so it's organized quite quickly, and then people vote with military military standing in the street. So it is yes, it is people expressing their will. But when you when you go vote with uh, you know when you when when you go when you go to the ballots uh, to the booth to to um um put your ballot in, and there is like a a soldier standing nearby um it's they're not exactly telling you how to vote but crimea voted over roaming to join russia um, i will not talk about crimea much because i'm not from there so i can't really talk on, on their behalf and what they feel like uh clearly a lot of people definitely believe that uh, life would be better um joining joining russia in crimea and because Ukraine has not exactly been a successful country in the, uh, during the period of its independence. You know, it's a lower, middle-income country in Europe. A lot of people left uh, abroad to... A lot of people immigrated for a better life. And so it felt like uh, Russia was definitely richer, you know, thanks to its oil and gas industry. And a lot of Koreans definitely felt that um, they could improve something by by leaving Ukraine. Now, where word extends to us, the Eastern Ukrainians, this was the point where... Um, A lot of people saw what happened in Crimea and there was this feeling there well we can do it too Russia would welcome us back in because uh, we speak Russian here and uh, the the way it happened in Crimea if we host our own referenda here we uh, we can join Russia just like that too just like uh, just like Crimea joined Russia in two weeks and though and so this is where uh, separatists have started um, uh, their movement Um, so for in terms of how I felt being there, it's uh, definitely like well, being grade ten, being being grade eight uh, and fourteen. Um, we could understand, like me and my classmates, could understand the full scale of what was happening, um, how how much it mattered. You know, the 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 politics of it, because a lot of people were repeating whatever the parents would tell them <laughs> at that age. Like, it's, uh, there's not much of personal opinion; it's heavily influenced by like your relatives, your family. But we did feel like it was something we would never see in our lifetime again. Um, we were seeing something historic and it turned definitely historic like in terms of Ukraine in terms of Russia and in terms of all our personal lives and all my classmates their their lives changed quite drastically after after that spring after February March of 2014
1: yeah that's such a compelling story thank you so much you answered a lot of our follow-up questions as well so we don't have to Ask uh, about them, but I wanted to talk about the referendums as well. Uh, right now, recently, referendums also happened in eastern Ukraine, and of course, Russia is saying that the majority of the citizens, citizens, like up to ninety five percent of Ukrainian citizens, want to join Russia. While of course, the Ukrainian authorities are saying that. That is incorrect, since so many people, like 80% of the pre-war inhabitants, have either left Ukraine as refugees or have become just displaced internally. So how should the international arena really judge these referendums and believe, you know, the free will of the people, as you said, when there's literally the military standing outside with a gun and forcing you to sort of vote in a way?
2: Any any kind of vote, any referendum at this point? How many referendums were there? With three, three in twenty fourteen, Crimea joining Russia. uh two, uh, Luhansk, uh, uh Donetsk and Luhansk separating from Ukraine, and then now we had, um, Luhansk, Donetsk, Ghenza, and so on, so forth. Uh, seven referenda at this point uh, since twenty fourteen. Every single one of them was illegal. Um, it was not done in accordance with the Ukrainian authorities the perhaps even even looking back perhaps referenda in russia could be seen as the most legitimate because uh yeah russia they people resonate for me felt strongly about joining crimea uh joining russia perhaps not at the numbers that russia posted like over 90 percent uh joining uh joining russia uh, it's again it's hard to uh, uh understand the actual public support just because of uh, of censorship there and uh the, trying to run any actual any any poll that would be um reflective of what people think is pretty much impossible because um there's certainly certainly a um um well on the on the peninsula and on on Crimean peninsula the way Russian media work and uh um, the way people sort of behave themselves after Russia annexed them, it's uh, they understood that essential was turned into a military base, and so their opinion doesn't doesn't matter as much here. So it's the same as polling Russians in Russia. Do you support war in Ukraine? Well, when someone calls you and says, like usually these polls done by phone, like someone calls you and say, do you support war in Ukraine? Like. Just just being there and the record like it's you know who someone called you and asked you this like what are you gonna say <laughs> and it's probably yes or like I will or drop the phone. <laughs> uh, so any referendum should be taken you know should not be taken seriously. It's um it's seen especially the recent one there. It's definitely Russia's weakness uh, because they they would they announced you know they they host referendums. They announced that yes all all these people want to join Russia. It becomes Russia like literally next week. And then Ukrainian army continues advancement, and they took uh, they took over the villages that were Russian just yesterday. So <laughs> Russia's borders changed already, uh, just just a couple of days after referendum, and um, it's it's the whole world sees what it is. It is for what it is, and um, I don't. Uh, there is virtually almost no country that that recognizes it as as legitimate. As legitimate um, expression of people's will, it also we all seem to be careful when you know there are suggestions. What if what if we hold the actual referendum? You know, like legitimate referendum. What do we have? Ukraine authorities, we have UN, uh, you know, United Nations observers, observers from European Union, European Union, you know, Russian observers can come and we host the most legitimate referendum and see what actual people think. You know, it's uh, it seems like a, a good solution to to this whole situation, but. Um it's been eight years since the since 2014, and Russia has sent quite a lot of people to live there in Crimea, for example, and a lot of people from Russia also live in in those regions. So this situation is really not the same. It's not, it's a lot of people who no, who are not even natives of the region who would be voting in that. So it's it's a it's a mess created by perpetrated and perpetrated by Russia, and it's really hard to get out of it. And this is, you know, I always say there's there won't be a really easy any easy solution to this, and this war, uh, will be remembered for generations, and there will be a lot of hate between people for like probably the rest of the century because of this.
0: Yeah, that's the Elon Musk sort of solution that um you were talking about, and uh, just doesn't make any sense, especially given that these regions, I mean the The sovereignty of one country cannot be dictated by the, the imperial wills uh, of an of another. That needs to be something that is decided internally. And if Russia's pressuring Ukraine to imagine if if America pressured Quebec to have a referendum to 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 join them or or something related to that, it's obviously no country would see that um, as legitimate. So I want to move a little bit away from the sort of bigger picture. Um, conflict based stuff and and talk more about um you personally so what was the process that ended up with you coming to canada how did how did that work
2: we left uh so my family stayed in the donetsk region Occupied by Russian forces, uh, pro-Russian forces. You know, a lot of newspapers refer them to as to pro-Russian or self-proclaimed republics, which is the funniest one. Like they were not self-proclaimed. Russia helped them to Russia helped them a lot to proclaim themselves. Um, but yeah, they we, were, we lived in that territory uh, claimed and controlled by by pro-Russian forces by so-called republics, and we stayed there until the end of 2014, and after that we. Moved to uh, same region. It was well. We stayed within the region, but we moved to Ukrainian-controlled territory. So uh, it it's it's a story of you know how we look back at countries and regions that were split because of politics. You know, there was Germany and there was Korea, and now it's Eastern Ukraine. Uh, all these eight years, there was a line of demarcation line which um, happened as a result of the war. Uh, Ukrainians, uh, Ukrainian army managed to take some territory back. Or, um, and originally, though, there were attempts in in those cities too. To 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 you know, the, the republics claimed the entirety of the Donetsk and regions, and we an Ukrainian army contra-attacked. and, attacked, and um, it was really interesting at the time because most of the it, it was a very really weak separatist moment in the beginning. Um, and the where Ukrainians were fast to act, they were managed to take those villages back. And so we remained within the region. We moved to the Ukrainian-controlled territory, and that territory has never really. Uh, during the spring of 2014, they never really saw the war. Um, you know, there was this peace whole time, and it was it was so absurd because some of the the fate of those villages and it was not a small town where we lived. We removed to decide like uh, the fate was decided just because a few a few dozen policemen or, or, or people from Ukrainian security service were uh, fast to fast to react to separatist movement and shut it down. And for all for the next eight years, the, the city lived in, in peace. And so we moved back and it was a completely different world, you know, from living under the so-called Republic to, to living under Ukraine. And um, I stayed there for um almost the entire of 2015, where I can put it grade nine. My uncle, who lived uh, who still lives in Edmonton, Alberta, suggested that I move to Canada uh, for a year to to study and uh, to sort of um, take this as opportunity to um, take uh, move away from from there from that uh, from that chaos. and it's been an idea for a long time, so uh, of his that you know I could come to Canada and study English learn english language and um see see the wife abroad and they were we discussed this you know while we were um being being refugees that was 2014 as we were um we moved and we were my 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 mom my sister and i we moving around uh trying you know waiting for the war to be over we thought it would be over in, in a few months but at the time my mom talked to me and said well we we thought of this idea and like, what do you think? So at the time I was 14 and I said, well, I, we are currently refugees and uh, there's, there's literally nothing to to hold on to to here. So it, it makes sense to, to go elsewhere. You know, I don't have anything to lose. I'm very young. And, um, it took quite a bit of time to prepare the documents, you know, the student visa and, uh, um, the rest of things to to apply for uh, to apply for a visa to get approved. So it took a year. I, I we made the decision. I remember in August 2014, and my visa was approved in September of 2015. And as I received the visa in September 2015, and the idea was that I would go to a public school in Edmonton, and I would just live with my uncle, um, and that would be life. But then he he found a private school. In, uh between between Edmonton and Calgary uh, I was a, a Christian school uh, it belonged to it's part of the denomination of which uh, my dad uh, works for and um, it's called Seven day Day Adventist Church and it's uh, it's quite a they have a, a huge school system around the world so perhaps I should have mentioned it earlier on <laughs> my the job of my dad was uh, being a religious 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 minister and he uh, um, you know he that's what he's been doing his whole life. Uh, he studied to uh, um, has two theology degrees, and the the church uh, we you know we we part we're part of and the church we he works for has a huge school system around the world, only second only to Catholic system surprisingly. And there was a school in between Edmonton and Calgary located in a small small town called Wacom And my uncle simply talked to them, and he said, "Well, there's this um, there's this guy, and he's." He's a kid of the minister, and uh, they were refugees, and um, they they had to leave their town. And is there any possibility for him to study there? And you know, they said we can look at this, and they accepted me. And the plans changed quite quickly. From for me, the idea of the of studying from public school in Edmonton turned into living in a small town and studying at a private boarding school. And that's how I came to Canada. I went in Edmonton on November fifth, twenty fifteen, and a week later, I meet. I I headed to that school where I ended up staying up for one year, but for three years, and I I can put it, put a high school there.
0: Wow, that is such a compelling story. Um, just just to follow up on 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 something that you said there. Um, your mom and sister didn't join you in Canada are they still living in Ukraine
2: as we're recording dad, this podcast sorry. yeah so after recording this podcast uh, a lot of things have changed you know even if we recorded this one year ago I would be talking about how this conflict has been on for many years now we don't see an end to it we don't think there will be an end to it and a lot of things can change within a short period of time and you know our the lives of my family have turned upside down since um, since the invasion uh in in february this year my, as we speak as we record this podcast my mom and sister are in the state of oregon united states where my sister will be also studying at a at a christian academy which belongs to the the network of our of our church schools uh they were um um kind enough to launch this sort of program for Ukrainian uh, students, Ukrainian refugees. I, uh, I saw a picture, a group picture of them. I think there's about 20 students, Ukrainian students, and that's cool. So my sister is part of them and she'll be beginning in grade 10, starting with this Monday. And uh, my mom is traveling back to Canada after that. And my dad is currently in Ukraine. He is... Um, well, he continues to work he no longer uh he's no longer a minister but he works more of a uh an administration position in the in the church and he uh, he does ministry there and it's not um the life in ukraine is is quite quite terrible at the moment because living next to a crazy neighbor who continues to randomly bomb you know residential buildings and residential quarters um at any you know at any given moment there can be a, a rocket can land at, 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 in any um in any city in any village um there's no logic to it um so the, the life there is, is is not great and people unfortunately are getting used to it and I, I feel like the world is getting used to it and so my dad is my dad is current with and um you know they they do follow these protocols for when there's air error, error um alert like there's there, that you know, Government alerts people that can uh, something can potentially fall <laughs> very soon, but people kind of stop caring about it, and when the actual attack strikes, you know people die, and um, uh, it's not it's not um it's not something the world should getting used to, should be getting used to, and uh, there should be as much help as possible towards Ukraine to um, so the Ukraine can protect protect themselves from Russia.
1: For sure, uh, I mean it's very good to hear that your family is safe. Your dad is. Obviously, still in Ukraine, but we really hope that he stays safe. Uh, We also wanted to hear a bit more about what you think about the reactions of the world to this war. For example, where I'm from in Lithuania, also from Eastern Europe, uh, since the war started, there has definitely been hate crimes against Russians and just a very big reaction against Russian citizens as a whole, not only Putin's regime, I mean, Poland and Baltic states even enacted a visa ban for Russian citizens, while the EU made it harder for them to obtain visas overall. So what do you think of this? Like, should the world arena be blaming all Russians or only Putin's regime?
2: This is a complicated topic. I Sometimes I think of it in terms of alternative reality. What happened? What would have happened if my parents did not leave Russia, because I was born there and I, I could have been eligible for Russian citizenship. What would what would happen if we were on the other side of the border, right now? We would have been living in Russia and watching this, and we would be, you know, Ukrainians still. Like we have Ukrainian roots. We're, you know, uh, you have Ukrainian citizenship, but at the same time, we living in Russia. What do we do? And I understand the first reaction of um, many Ukrainians to, um, to blame Russians for. Or their inactivity or activity in, in this case, like um, the, their, their silence and their words, blame for anything they do. Um, there, there are a lot of emotions, um, angry emotions, and uh, it's really hard, of course, to be rational when the bombs are falling on you and uh, um, your Russian relatives cannot do much because I, I speak in terms of relatives because a lot of people, it's a reality of, you know, Um, of of people having families in Russia and and friends in Russia and uh, um, just being able to interact with them and and them being people in Russia being helpless um, in, in, in face of this. The leaders of the Western countries took this position at the beginning of the war. They emphasized multiple times that this is not Russia's people's war, this is Putin's war. And they, they explicitly said, you know, that I remember Boris Johnson recording like his speech in Russian. I do not believe this war is on behalf of your name. He was speaking in Russian. And it was a good position to take because um, blaming Russians um, for, you know, for the war only strength is uh, the internal Russian propaganda, where uh, they say, you know, we're not fighting against the Ukraine, we're fighting against the collective West. And that empowers people and that empowers propagandists to say, see, they hate you. They absolutely hate you for being Russian. And they continue to use that. You know, they they say, um, you know, they, they cherry pick whatever happens to Russians. You know, there are definitely hate crimes happening in Europe uh, towards Russian. They use that. See, like, there is Russophobia and uh, uh, they they do not like you. This is, therefore, the war, this war against Ukraine is justified because it's not just about Ukraine. It's about fighting against the collective West. And... Uh, we should not blame we shouldn't blame Russians um at for forever for whatever is happening right now. It's important to understand they um you know it's easy to say, well why why don't you go and <laughs> start a revolution against Putin? Uh, it's uh, Putin has been uh tidying the power, the grip on power for over 20 years and now he's holding it um very firmly. There is no indication that he, he will go down anytime soon unless there's a, some sort of palace coup. Um Russians have, have have they will have to deal with this. This will be their problem. How did they allow this to happen? You know, how did they make it to the point of um, of their government starting a war against neighbor nation? And they Russians cannot do them anything about this. This is this is a they'll have this is their internal problem to deal with because um, you know they, they they will have to ask this question: Why why did they allow our country to become like this? So that's not that's not that's not our problem, and you know we we can't tell them what to do um i i don't know you know the future between Ukrainians and Russians at this point there won't be you know a lot of people have always felt uh always had good feelings kind feelings towards the Russians and there's always this talk of us being brothers sisters whatever you call it siblings we, we and i i can't definitely say that a relationship um has not been equal uh Russians and had not viewed us as, as equal of siblings you know it's kind of like older sibling and the younger sibling is like i don't know 10 15 years younger totally different uh, totally different life that sibling is having and Russians definitely look down uh, on Ukrainians a lot i do remember traveling to russia um and speaking russian there and people say well, that's not real russian you're speaking some kind of regional russian what's this accent you know they they're being really posh about it and you know in moscow there are people who um, uh, who, who look down on regional accents, and um, you know, Russian is my native language. I'm, I'm sorry, I speak it the way I, I, I learned to do it in childhood. Uh, so I do not blame, you know, individual Russians. I, be, I still have family living there, and uh, it's, it is. I do feel sometimes it's a first instinct to blame them because just to blame someone for it, you know, just to say, well, why call them and say why you're not. Why you're not doing anything but I I do have to think of myself over, over alternative reality where I am on that side of the board in Russia and uh, my Ukrainian relative calls me and say well actually why are you not doing anything this is um this is your fault uh at the same time there is there's a certain you know problem with the, with our roadrs in France sort of being ambivalent about it and not even checking in to see how we are <laughs> uh like maybe because of guilt maybe because of like uh the sense of um Hopelessness. Russians. Russians have different mentality. They won't. They won't call your text you like, and Amer- Americans would do like, or, um, you know, Canadians would do just just if they even if they cannot do anything, at least they'll 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 ask you how are you doing, and Russians won't do that because if they can't do anything, well, might as well not not even ask, not even not even reach out. So there there are these men, there are these um, like, um mentality correct uh, characteristics of their mentality, um. Which is which is okay, which is which is just different from what I'm used to. For example, in Canada. So yeah, to to sum up the answer to your question, you know, individual Russians should not be blamed, but I cannot I can understand the poli- the policy of 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 neighboring nations. You know, when Germany does not want to entirely prohibit uh, Russians entering Germany, Germany is not bordering Russia, <laughs> so it's a completely different reality that Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania have to live in, and Poland when they are when they are bordering Russia. So. Uh, whatever, whatever their national politics are, I can't comment much on this because I do not live there.
0: Uh, Alexei, I think that just about wraps things up. Uh, I really just want to reiterate how thankful we are that you agreed to come on our show. Um, your insights, both as a as a student of international relations, someone that's clearly educated on this subject, and just your personal experiences. Uh, a Russian-speaking Eastern Ukrainian that feels a strong identity um, with Ukraine is just, um, I think, super insightful. I felt that I learned um, a whole lot today, and again, just thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thanks for inviting me. I was glad to share my my perspective, and hopefully, it um, helps viewers to understand the station is a little bit, a little bit more. The foreign wars are always complex. You know, it does feel like there is this whole uh there's this whole uh, station to untangle there's so much there's so much happening and sometimes it's difficult for me like i have been away from there and i don't really um identify like i don't understand ukrainian culture sometimes because i've been away from them and what they talk about can be a little little foreign to me so even i can lose uh even i can lose understanding of it so not to speak of regular canadians and other other us your podcasts who just who just want to um understand what's happening but i, I hope i was a little i was helpful hope I was helpful and uh, it helped your your listeners to to gain a additional insight into, into this war.
0: Yeah, you definitely were helpful. Uh, again, thank you so much uh, and take care.
1: So that is it, you guys, for episode 10. We really hope you enjoyed it and learned something new. It was a pleasure having our guest, And don't forget to follow us on all social media, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, and we will see you all next week. Goodbye.